This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Tamara Winfrey Harris discusses her new book, The Sisters Are All Right. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot examines the furor over Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What you got in nonfiction? Well, number three, uh, our highest debut, is A Full Life, Reflections at 90 by Jimmy Carter. And our review says, while there's no gain saying Carter's active and selfless post-White House life, this uneven volume is largely a superficial treatment of events and personalities covered elsewhere in more depth, including by the former president himself. So, well. um, yeah. So... <laughs> Maybe a couple more reflections here and there. A lot of it's been covered before. They said it comes complete with average at best poetry and artwork. It reads more like a vanity project than a lasting source of inspiration and information. So people want it to definitely turn to his previous books for mm. for that. And, and he is a great writer. And um, uh, so. Uh, but this one's for the Carter completists. Yes, exactly. For the Carter completists. Uh, then, then we have to go to number 18 to get the next uh, debut, The Friends of Jesus. This is part of the life-changing Bible study series by uh, Karen Kingsbury. She's a best-selling uh, inspirational novelist. Uh, and this one, these are tales about uh, six of Jesus' uh, closest friends and companions. Which which she brings uh, biblical uh, truths to life in this captivating continuation of her life changing Bible study series. That's uh, not our review, but the uh, uh, publicity material. Uh, so so it, that's so. basically a tie in novel to the Jesus franchise. A tie in novel to the Jesus franchise, exactly. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so uh, number twenty four, we have a starred review of the billion dollar spy, a true story of Cold War espionage and betrayal by David Hoffman. Hoffman is a, a Pulitzer winner, uh, the author of The Dead Hand, and he returns to the Cold War era in this latest biography, proving that nonfiction can read like a John le Carré thriller. Wow. Uh, so that's actually really great for a history book. Um, uh, I mean, that's kind of what you want in some of your history books, especially on Definitely. the CIA and espionage and Cold War. Uh, uh, we, we say that uh, this real-life tale of espionage will hook readers from the get-go. So that's at number 24. Um, going down next to 25 is you're making me hate you. A cantankerous look at the common misconception that humans have any common sense left by Corey Taylor. Uh, Corey Taylor is best known for being the front man for metal band Slipknot and Stone Sour. And this is his third book, uh, which uh, I believe the previous two have been bestsellers too. Uh, the Seven Deadly Sins and a Funny Thing Happened on the Way to, to Heaven. And uh, here he talks about uh, uh, various human behaviors uh, and life in this postmodern digital blanked out waiting room that passes for a world. Um, so uh, that's at number 25. And finally at 41, Beach Reed Lisa Scottolini and her daughter Francesca Saratella. Does this beach make me look fat? True stories and confessions. And this is coming from their Philadelphia Inquirer column. So, uh, or at least uh, Saratella's part comes from that. We say this breezy, thoughtful book offers funny and lovely family moments that mothers and daughters will savor. That's our review. All right. Well, uh, on the fiction side, we also have a, a lot of thrilling thrillerness going on. Oh, cool. uh, so number two is Code of Conduct, a thriller by Brad Thor. This mm. is the 14th in his Scott Horvath series. And uh, Scott Horvath is a counterterrorism operative. And this is uh, what the book 
sort of predictably calls the the deadliest assignment of his career because with this sort of thriller series you have to keep upping the stakes or your readers will go elsewhere (laughs) perhaps to that uh, non-fiction title about actual spies so uh, that's at number two and then uh, going down just a little bit at number four uh, is the domestic version of the same thing Catherine Coulter's Nemesis Um, Coulter is a a rare woman making it good in the thriller world and uh, she this is her 19th FBI thriller after Power Play, and our review says it immediately immerses the reader in heart-stopping suspense, uh, but there is a supernatural element that may not be to every taste. We don't spoil what that is, but readers who want everything to be absolutely meticulously realistic mm-hmm. should be warned. Uh, moving down a little bit on the list, uh, we get down to, uh, actually moving down quite a lot, down to number 29 is Dexter is Dead by Jeff Lindsay for those who watch the Dexter uh, TV series. This ah. is the eighth book, uh, and apparently the final book in uh, the the series of novels. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this one, the end of the previous book, Dexter, who's a serial killer who targets other serial killers, is locked in a, a tiny prison cell, and for a change, he's not guilty this time. So there's a, a whole complicated series of events involving a murder and who actually done it. And uh, meanwhile, he's uh, kind of stuck in legal limbo. And our review says that many readers will struggle to sympathize with this anti-hero and the series resolution won't satisfy all the fans. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of a, a mix there, but still anyone who's followed the series for seven books will probably want that eighth one and uh as as always i'm happy to celebrate the science fiction fantasy titles on the list at number 33 is aurora by kim stanley robinson we gave this a starred review calling it an ambitious hard sf epic that shows robinson at the top of his game Um, he really is interested in near future sf that explores uh, what happens to humanity how we continue to develop and evolve Mm. physiologically culturally and uh, in this case he goes much further uh, and uh, it starts looking at the people living aboard a generation ship, a starship that's um, traveling for so long that multiple generations will be born and live and die on the ship before it reaches its destination. And uh, we say that, as always, Robinson is at his best when he's dealing with large populations, scientific questions, and logistics. And the very human characters are more than afterthoughts and even an occasional lapse into preaching about the philosophical problems with space exploration can't mar this poignant story which admirably stretches the limits of human imagination so that's one of the big sf books for the year nice to see it hitting the bestseller list and uh, finally i just wanted to note a couple of uh, books that are really tied in i think more to media events than anything else at number 39 probably the first time it's been on the hardcover bestseller list in a very long time is To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And later today we'll be talking with Jim Milliot about Go Set a Watchman, right. which is Lee's new novel. But certainly the buzz around Go Set a Watchman has helped to put Mockingbird back on the list. Mm-hmm. So uh, to give you some idea of how much the newer book has been a boost to it, um, the previous week it had sold 700 copies in hardcover and this week it sold 1,500. So I Got think it. a lot of people are picking it up at the same time as they pick up ghosts at a watchman. And uh, finally, a uh, slightly different sort of tie-in to media events. We have two books connected to Star Wars, uh, which uh, Buzz is really building in anticipation of the upcoming new Star Wars right. movies. So at 16, we have Star Wars Dark Disciple by Christy Golden, which is one of the tie-in novels. And then at uh, number 40, we have William Shakespeare's The Clone Army Attacketh, mm. Star Wars Part the Second. This is part of a humorous series that's been put out by Quirk right. Books, which is re telling Star Wars stories, so stories familiar from the movies in the style, more or less, of William Shakespeare. <laughs> right. So uh, that's one to get for the Star Wars fan in your life who is salivating and desperate for the movie, and it's just not here yet. What do they do? Right. And that's what we've got uh, on the hardcover fiction list, um, except for one final shout-out to your radio guest last week while I was out. A.J. Rich are at number 50 on the hardcover bestseller list right. with The Hand That Feeds You. Great. So. Excellent. Well, well done to them. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Tamara Winfrey Harris tells us about the obstacles black women face in America. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is Justin Martin, author of Rebel Souls, Walt Whitman and America's First Bohemians, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Tamara Winfrey-Harris on the line. Her new book is The Sisters Are All Right. Hi, Tamara. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you so much. I'm honored. So you write about current events, politics, pop culture, and how those things intersect with race and gender. How did that lead to this, which is your first book? Well, initially, I was very fascinated by um, the way the media and the way people were talking about this so-called black marriage crisis, um, which is this idea, well, which is the truth, that um, black women marry much less than our white counterparts. Um, But in discussing that, there was a lot of talking about what black women must be doing wrong to not get chosen. So initially, my book idea was going to be talking about that, but then as I researched that issue, I realized that a lot of the ways that we talk about black women in marriage, you know, there's something much deeper there. The same sort of racist and sexist ideas that kind of undercut that issue affect black women in a lot of areas, like, you know, how they feel about their appearance and their health and marriage and motherhood, you know, all of those things. So I wanted to talk um, more broadly about those issues. And the book is kind of a culmination of things that I've been writing about for about eight years in, in a lot of different places. So, yeah, you, you talk about the obstacles black women face in America, but how they're doing, you know, how well they're doing, you mm-hmm. know, despite it all. Um, you've included your own experiences alongside with uh, interviews of women. Uh, how did you decide who to interview and how did you know to uh, put the book together this way? Well, one of the reasons that I put it together the way I did is because I think sometimes black women's voices tend to be erased. You know, when we talk about black issues, very often, um, you know, the media talks to black men and looks at those issues from a male perspective. And very often when we talk about gender, um, we talk about that through the lens of white women. And so very often black women's voices are kind of erased. So it was really important to me to get the voices of actual black women talking about their experiences um, into the book. Um, and then I tried to cast a wide net. I mean, I talked to some friends of friends. I used social media. Um, I got postings in some um, some online media spaces and print media spaces. And I also tried to make an effort to get at the diversity um, there is among black women. Like, I wanted to make sure I talked to straight women and also women who identify as lesbian. I wanted to talk to women who are married and single, women who were young and women who were older. You know, I didn't do a perfect job there, but I really wanted to get a diversity of voices because we are not a monolith. And in our review, we say, uh, and we quote, this energetic, passionate, and progressive mission statement illuminates old stereotypes that continue to dog black women today. Servile, self-sacrificing mammy, emasculating sapphire, licentious Jezebel, and the post-1960s uh, image of the matriarch, uh, matriarch mm-hmm. a baby-producing single mom on welfare. Um, tell us about these stereotypes, how, how they came about and still sadly persist. Well, a lot of them are rooted in slavery, um, believe it or not, and and we know that that is something that happened more than a hundred years ago. But those ideas sort of continue to, to continue to dog black women. So, you know, at a time when women, in generally that means white middle class women, um, were seen as very very delicate and very chaste and beautiful, and there was kind of the pinnacle of femininity, you know, black women, just by virtue of being enslaved, had to be positioned in a different way, sort of the polar opposite. So that's where a lot of um, ideas about our being, for instance, hypersexual came from, Um, because if you're going to use a woman and breed her for new human property, you certainly can't think of her as being chaste and virginal. And so, for instance, that 
idea of the Jezebel kind of follows us. It's the reason I say in the book that, you know, very many people will look at Madonna and see her as kind of a pinnacle of feminism because she's fighting back against the idea that women's sexuality is all about men and men and women can't be sexual. But at the same time, some of those same people may look at, say, a Beyonce or a Nicki Minaj and see their sexual displays as somehow inappropriate and immoral and kind of thoughtless. You know, we're there are sexist elements to the way both black women and white women are viewed, and certainly every other woman, um, but the way it's enacted on us tends to differ and, and is affected by things like race. And then you get all of these white women writing think pieces about, uh, is she really a feminist? Like there's mm-hmm. uh, some sort of litmus test that black women are not passing just because they're black. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and how does this tie into uh, the the rise of womanism as a as a parallel movement or as a response to the white woman's feminism? I can't, you know, I don't know a lot about from woman, womanism. I certainly know that it exists. I always, I feel comfortable calling myself a feminist, um, and I understand that there are many black women who don't feel comfortable doing that. But for me, and and largely, I know some black women don't feel comfortable because of the way they see white women's um, needs and experience kind of preferenced in feminism. But as I turn that over in my head, I also realize that black women and other women of color have always been part of feminism. You have wonderful people like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and the Kohambi River Collective and all of Sojourner Truth. Um, you know, and I, I don't want to cede feminism to other women um, because it seems like erasing all of those women's hard work and they call themselves feminists. So I'm okay with calling myself a feminist. That makes a lot of sense. So another thing that you talk about in your book um, is about how black men can sometimes be obstacles to black women's success. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, I mean, none of us can help being affected by a lot of the biases that that surround us in this society, and black men are no exception. Um, they are men, so they can be sexist, just like all men can be. Um, and, you know, there is an element of respectability politics that I talk about in the book. So, again, going back to, say, the Jezebel issue, you know, black women are very often asked to... Um, prove that we aren't Jezebels by being particularly non-sexual or asexual, um, chaste and virginal. And very often it's black men who um, kind of wields that you know, that stick um, in saying that, you know, black women should have respect for themselves. Um, a woman like Beyonce should cover up. Um, you don't want to be outside. Like, what are people going to think? Um, so in that way, and, and some others, I mean, black, black men are men, so they are still part of patriarchal culture, and so, you know, they play some role in, you know, oppressing black women. In, in your book, you you you, you talk about African American women, and, and you uh, I think we're co- quoting you have the highest workforce participation rate among all American women. And in 2013, there was 1.1 million owned their own businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about these businesses and and of some of these entrepreneurs who you interviewed. You know, one of the people that I interviewed, and I absolutely love her, her name is Jamila Banu, and she started a business called Oyin Handmade. Um, and believe it or not, I started as a fan because I'm a black woman who wears her hair natural, so unstraightened, and it was one of the products that I really loved. But she is a black woman who started off, you know, she decided to go natural. And I talk about in the book that there's kind of a, a natural hair revolution um, that's happening right now. Um, the majority of black women historically have chosen to straighten their hair because that's seen as more acceptable and more professional. 
But over, I'd say, the last decade, more and more black women have become comfortable with wearing their hair in styles um, that lend themselves to, you know, our hair that is sometimes, you know, kinkier and thicker um, than our white counterparts. So Jamila started off, she went natural, and she started trying out natural products and mixing them in her own home to try on her own hair. Um, and she went from doing that to people asking her for her recipes. Um, so she shared the recipes, and then people said, no, I would prefer that you just send me the product. And so she went from that to having a brick-and-mortar store in Baltimore, and I believe she is now in 400 targets across the country. Wow. And she and her husband have worked together to make it a business. And that business is also, and she will tell you, a very affirming business. If you order something from OEN Handmade, you get this little card that says, Hello, Beautiful. So not only is she trying to affirm black women, but, I mean, she has also built, built a business. That sounds incredible. So tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about some of the other people who you interviewed for the book. Oh, I, inter I interviewed some amazing women. I always say that this if no one ever reads this book, just the opportunity to talk to so many amazing women, it, it was like therapy for me. It was wonderful. So I talked to um, one woman who is in her 60s, and she talks about um, how hard she has worked throughout her life. She was a teacher. She was a mom, and how hard she drove herself because she thought she was supposed to be a strong black woman, um, and she thought she was it should be able to do all things and, and juggle family and work and all of her obligations um, until her body told her no, and she became sick um, and, you know, was down for several months, and she talked to me about how that changed her perspective and how now in her 60s she is more able to slow down and know when to say no. And as she said, know that no is a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. and you don't have to explain to anyone why you can't do what they need you to do. And I thought that was powerful, especially coming from a woman who is older. Um, I also talked to some woman, women who are single black moms, and that's a group that is often denigrated. Um, but they talked about the ways that um, they work hard for their families. They talk about the ways that they are thoughtful and the way they include a village in the raising of their children. One is particularly interesting because she is a single mother by choice. She is also working to get her Ph.D., and she is also a minister in the AME Church. So she is certainly not anyone's stereotype of what people think about when they think single black mother. In doing your research about the uh, African-American women in the workforce, did you find that it was or were there, were there figures to, that, that, that discussed um, whether this was uniform across the country or are there places uh, more in, in one part of the country more than others? Actually, that I do not know. I did not come across anything like that. But and uh, you are from the uh, Midwest. I'm jumping a little bit ahead right here, and you sure. consider yourself a uh, Midwesterner at heart. Um, you're, you're from Indiana. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about your upbringing there, and uh, what, tell us about what makes a Midwesterner. Sure. Well, I always, oh, I love, I love this topic because, um, you know, I actually wrote an article about this once. When people start, you know, we're coming up on another election cycle and people are going to start talking about people in the heartland and they're going to make it sound like everyone who lives between the two coasts is white and conservative and rural or suburban and we all think alike and that couldn't be further from the truth. I grew up in Indiana. 
which is more than corn. I actually grew up in northwestern Indiana, which is very industrial. It is the Rust Belt, um, and it is it is very diverse. I grew up in Gary, Indiana. Hmm. Me and Michael Jackson, though at different I was, times. I was just going to um, mention Michael my Jackson. My parents are. My parents are actually. My parents are educators. My mom was a teacher, and my dad is a retired principal, and he is part of the Great Migration up from the South. My maternal grandparents are also from the South. Um, so I, like a lot of other children of the Great Migration, that's kind of a unique experience that we have, you know, being Northerners but having strong Southern Southern roots. So I grew up right outside of Chicago, but in Indiana, in the Midwest, in a blue area, in a red state. So <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Tamara Winfrey Harris, the author of The Sisters Are All Right, who was just telling us about her, her roots in the South and experience growing up in the Midwest. Um, tell us a little bit about how that connects you to different people who are uh, activists in this area, feminist activists and feminist researchers across the country. How, how, do, you, how do you handle the, the diversity that people might not expect is there? You know, what I found is that I've made so many connections with other writers, and in particular feminist and anti-racist writers, online. The Internet is a wonderful thing sometimes. <laughs> you can find your tribe really easily. And I, you know, and I think that's where my tribe is. There's so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, women authors and writers that I've connected with online who are tremendously supportive and have been supportive of the book. And I also think perhaps a little bit of it is in my blood. You know, my mother has always been a wonderful writer, and I like to think that I have some of her talent. And I even um, found my great maternal grandmother who you know raised 10 kids on a farm in Alabama recently came across about a hundred poems that she wrote mm. um, which I find amazing and they're good too wow but I like to think some of it may just run in my blood a lot of wonderful women who love to write and uh, let's talk about some of the other folks who are who are writing right now in the in the same spheres um, Publishing at the same time as your book is Tanahasi Coates's book Between the World and Me, which is a letter to his son. Um, how how does that work? Um, uh, that conversation among black men kind of parallel the work that you're doing. Well, I, th- I think what you said is absolutely perfect. It does parallel what a lot of black women and what a lot of black feminists are writing about um, about their their experiences. And I know that I've seen some pushback online about, um, you know, Tanahasi is an amazing writer. I read his stuff and want to throw my computer across the room. <laughs> I think a lot of us so feel that good. way. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is, um, you know, there's this rush to say there can be only one and that his new book is kind of the book on race that everyone needs to read. And I just hope that everyone will read his book because it's sitting on my Kindle, so it's my next read. I know it is wonderful, but that um, they will also read the diversity of experiences, including black women and black trans women like Janet Mock's book and remember that there cannot be one book that is representative of the story of race in America. Um, you you had published an article in uh, Bitch Magazine, which is now in its, uh, the article in a, in a, in a uh, was, uh, anthologized in the textbook Arlington Reader, which is now in its fourth edition. Um, and we were talking about black women. Tell us about the article, uh, your article, No Disrespect, Black Women and the Burden of Respectability. 
So I dug into the idea of respectability a little deeper, and I used um, some of the feedback that black women in the public eye get when they um, take on sexual roles. Or in the case of uh, Viola Davis, she took on the role of uh, a maid in The Help. And it's this idea that emerged in the 19th century among black leaders that the way to gain equality was through assimilation. So aggressively adopting the mores and the values of the majority culture. Um, and that idea, it worked. It definitely has a huge place in the civil rights movement. You know, you see pictures from the 60s and the 50s, and you see people marching, and they're, you know, in their Sunday best. They're in dresses, mm-hmm. and they're in suits, and you know, shirts and ties. Um, and it was a way of saying that we are like you. We are respectable, and we... Um, we deserve these same rights that you have. But there is a downside to that because, you know, the community or the black community or any marginalized community can end up endorsing values that are flawed. So in this case, for instance, you know, white women have long been oppressed by sexist views of femininity. So, you know, rather than pushing back against that, sometimes marginalized communities tend to double down on that. And in this case, it requires that black women then um, adhere to these stringent um, guidelines of both race and gender, which is which is unfair. And so I looked at how that affects black women in the public eye, like Viola Davis, who people were saying, you know, it's a real shame that she was um, nominated for an Oscar for this role because it's a maid's role, and that's not respectable, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is a... Is a is a terrible thing to say about all the black women that had to be domestic workers and that continue to be. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, I've seen people talking about respectability politics a lot recently um, in the context of discussing women who are the victims of police violence, uh, Mm -hmm. saying that the respectability will not save you uh, when you know racism can can overwhelm any image that you try to project um, how how does your work tie in to uh, efforts like say her name and uh, other work to recognize black women both as activists against police brutality and as victims of that brutality well one of the things that I talk about in the chapter on strength is how black women are seen as um, durable. Um, you know, there's a downside to the idea of the strong black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seen as unusually strong, so not um, not worthy of care and empathy, which is why, you know, you often see, you know, it's it's been called missing white woman syndrome. When um, a young, pretty white woman goes missing, um, you know, it, it's all over the television from coast to coast, you know, in every city. But when a black woman goes missing, similarly, you don't hear about it at all. Um, in the same way, you know, we're hearing a lot about black men who are victims of extrajudicial violence, um, but not as much about um, black women, which is a shame because we are dying too. Um, so that chapter explores a little bit why we tend to be left out of those discussions and how it's rooted in this idea that we are super strong, um, as Zora Neale Hurston said, the mules of the world, and so don't need the kind of care that other people do. So there's, there's so much going on right now in activism, in um, shifts in media attention uh, mm-hmm. to crimes, particularly uh, against black people. How do you see the conversation continuing to change in the coming years? Or is there just too much happening? It's hard to predict. Well, the one thing that I think is great is that you are hearing more, even though you're not hearing as much as you should about black women, there are black women who are making their voices heard within the conversation. I mean, the founders of Black Lives, Mat- black Lives Matter are women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think that will change the, the conversation to make sure that all black lives 
matter, and some don't matter more than others. Perfectly put. So you you were just talking about uh, men who in incarceration, and uh, just an hour or so ago, uh, there was on the news a um, African American woman who was arrested for a bogus ticket or some sort of ticket and brought into the police station and um the next day i believe it was the next day they they found her um hanged mm-hmm. and how i mean this is this is one of the first cases of of an african american american woman uh that i've heard recently you were just talking about how we've not heard that much even though it's happening mm-hmm. i think you know one of the things that just grabbed my heart and I saw earlier today on Facebook a woman was responding to the story. A woman's name was Sandra Bland, by the way, is the woman who was possibly killed in Texas. And she was saying you know, the person on Facebook was responding to this story and saying, you know, now if I get stopped by police for taillight or speeding or whatever minor infraction, she said, I'm I'm scared because Mm -hmm. I don't know whether I will ever see my family again. I really don't. And I don't know whether anyone will care if something happens to me. And that's, that's heartbreaking. And that should not be the case in this country. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's reading these stories. As you said, um, the Internet is an incredible place for connecting with people and and sharing stories. I know that I've learned a tremendous amount just by reading people's stories on social media. Do you feel like that's helping to maybe break down some of these barriers and help to, to sort of pop the white bubble that a lot of white folks live in and help them realize that there's something going on that they haven't been shown by the media? I really do. I think the Internet has become kind of an equalizer because there are so many platforms where there are not gatekeepers. I mean, you can talk about what you want to talk about. You know, a lot of people talk about black Twitter. I mean, that's one of the places where, you know, people can have these amazing discussions and there's no one to say that that's inappropriate or there's no one to say that, you know, our readers don't care about that. You can talk about what you want to and you can find like-minded people. And I think that's changing the way we view a host of issues. And you've obviously had some success in traditional media. Do you have any advice for um, black women particularly who are trying to break past uh, that that perhaps white editorial lens of our readers won't care, or this isn't relevant, and to, to help get their voices heard in these larger mainstream publications? I would say write and write well. Keep improving your writing keep reading, and I'd say have good mentors, mentors who are black women writers, but also mentors who are not, because many of those people can help you get entry into other spaces. And uh, what what are some good ways to connect with those mentors? Because I'm, I'm sure that's the question that comes to mind to a lot of people listening to this. To be honest, in my experience, I found many of them online. I found them in spaces where, um, you know, women who write gather. And I found them, I think, by doing my own writing and writing in a way that got noticed by some people. Um, You know, and we would meet and we would share our common ideas and we would share our challenges and our contacts and, hey, here's the best editor um, to contact over here. And, you know, maybe you don't want to try this outlet. Try this other one. I think that's crucial. Actually, it's one of the points made in the book how important it is to have a circle of women. And that goes for black women and white women, too. Um, a circle of us that support each other, I think, can be very, very powerful for a writer and for anyone else. We've been talking with Tamara Winfrey Harris, and you can find her book, The Sisters Are All Right, in stores right now. Tamara, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot tells us who watches The Watchmen. That is, go set a Watchmen. We'll be right back. I'm Diane Ackerman, the author of Human Age, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us what's going on with Harper Lee's new novel. Hello, Jim. She has a new novel? <laughs> yes, it's crazy. It's that, crazy. That, that's I what think I should heard. have reported on it. Yeah, yeah. so um, so there's uh, been a lot of talk since the book came out, um, some very unfavorable reviews. Uh, and and a lot of discussion about what it means to take this character of Atticus Finch, who was uh, the the white defender of a black man, in To Kill a Mockingbird, and to turn him into this uh, sort of well-meaning racist figure in the new book. What what's what's the conversation been? That is a lot of the conversation, Rose. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, people were really wondering what it was going to be about, and I don't think there was high expectations, but there's nobody, I think, saw this plot twist, if you will, uh, occurring. So it has really driven the conversation since since the book has come out. And it's really, in some ways, led to two types of reviews. Um, You know, our review focused on the storytelling, the, the literary aspects of it. And I think it's safe to say we didn't give it a glowing review. But there is uh, another train of thought out there that really has taken on the whole question of, well, you know, she was right. Um, <laughs> right. That uh, there were a lot of people like Atticus and that when they were younger and idealistic, um, but all, you know, had one point of view when they grew a little older, grew a little more conservative, if you will. But also that... Um, he always was, you can make this argument, he always was really defending the law. It wasn't so much he was standing up for the rights of uh, African Americans back there, but he saw this as his duty almost, and that that's really what he was all about in To Kill a Mockingbird. So are people going to go back and reread To Kill a Mockingbird and find that the, the bloom is kind of off the rose after 55 years, that suddenly <laughs> all along in, in this book there was like this, this secret hidden racist book inside what's supposed to be an anti-racist book? Uh, you might find that. Um, I know one of our editors here said they're not going to read uh, Watchmen because mm. they, they don't want to don't want to disillusion. It would, it would spoil it. Right, it would spoil it. And I was talking to some people at Amazon a little while ago, and they said they some of their friends had said them, so the same thing. But um, be that as it may, uh, the, the good news for the bookselling industry and booksellers in particular is that at um, both Barnes and Noble and Books a Million, the mm-hmm. books set uh, one day sales records wow. for, for an adult fiction title. Right. As as in outselling Fifty Shades of Grey? I was just going to ask. As yeah. in outselling uh, Grey, yes, uh, the big hit of June. Uh-huh. But also, I mean, Barnes and Noble pointed out uh, outselling um, Dan Brown's The Last Symbol, which had held the title up mm. until uh, Tuesday. Wow. And, uh, you know, really? That, yes. Yes. Oh, wow. Well, there, there was t- a lot and lot of pre-orders on right. this. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And that is all counted in the first day sales. So, you know, as soon as the book was announced, you know, Harper, I think we mentioned last week, had announced it was the, the biggest pre-ordered book in the, in the company's history. Um, it was heavily pre-ordered at Amazon right. and Barnes & Noble and a lot of the independent stores. Yeah. I mean, they had a lot of pre-orders. So, you know, that certainly helped, uh, you know, fuel, fuel the sales. Um, and people showed up and bought the book. Well, that's it. I mean, it was interesting. We talked before about Gray, where uh, you know the first week there was uh, what maybe eight hundred thousand books sold according to Nielsen Book Scan, and right. then we were figuring maybe the same number in uh, on Kindle or, or on you know, right, and, right. And I wonder with this with this book whether the uh, the the hard copy is 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 still the most popular one by and by how much? I assume it is. Right. I'm pretty. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's going to be. Um, we'll have to wait for print numbers until Wednesday mm-hmm. when BookScan comes out. And of course, we'll have to guess at what uh, the Kindle numbers were, but um, or all ebook. Um, but this type of story is a way different than uh, Gray and the, you know the romance genre, yeah. as Rosewell knows. You can is, read it openly on the subway. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say that, which is why Gray was so, so popular. <laughs> Well, for whatever <laughs> reason, uh, you know, like fifty percent of sales are usually, you know, yeah. of ebooks and romance. Um, right. And yep. I think this will be, uh, we'll see a lot different pattern. 
Uh, did uh, booksellers were they selling uh, To Kill a Mockingbird alongside for those who hadn't read it or or Absolutely. had not read it yeah. in decades? Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, I think maybe hadn't read it in decades is the key there. Um, yeah, uh, sales are up wildly. Yeah. Uh, every even really since. Um, the first announcement came in February about Watchmen, and you know, up, you know, pretty much double from hmm. from February up through right. uh, last week in terms of wow. the, the paperback editions. So yeah, there was definitely um, a, a carryover effect, and people going back and you know rereading it mm-hmm. or uh, you know getting a, getting a glimpse of it. Anyway, it's always been popular in in, in, in high schools. You know, it's right. been on the on the reading list. Right. So it's. Um, it's interesting. We have a, a soapbox from an African-American writer who will appear in Monday's issue, and it really looks at what was all the fuss about to begin with. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. You know, and his two sons are reading it in, in school now, or I just read it in school, and they kind of had the same, um, the same take on it. I think the, the, the piece ends by his youngest son saying, was I supposed to like this book? And it goes to some of the things we had just talked about before, about... Um, Atticus in particular about he saw him as what we're talking about now as Mm -hmm. sort of doing his job right Um, the white knight coming in to to save the day right yeah yeah the well-meaning ally right exactly so it's a really interesting take and it's worth reading um for all you people out there, either in the magazine or uh, I think it'll be on the website uh, relatively soon. And uh, I was I was just going to say that I'd also seen um, it felt like this provided some people an opportunity to say openly that they didn't actually like To Kill a Mockingbird, which was sort of a taboo thing to say because everyone's supposed to like it. It's right. supposed to be this classic and it's it's it can be very difficult to kind of overcome the social pressure and say, well, actually, I didn't like this book that is part of the canon. Right. No, um, yeah. And so I'm seeing <laughs> <laughs> a whole conversation happening about this book that is, you know, over five decades old, yeah. which is incredible that it's had that staying power, but also that that we only sort of felt allowed to talk about it one way. And now that a new book is out and people can be critical of the new book, that, that opens the door to be critical of the old book. Yeah. Well, I did definitely think there's something to that. And we were just debating it in the office here about what, what people are really remembering the movie as much as Which the book. Was, you right. know, Gregory Peck was impeccable, right. if you will. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you can, I will. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, he was certainly this, this lion of, you know, the champion of civil rights and that. So, right. you know, it is, it's really an interesting conversation that I really developed about what Mockingbird went to say. And again, I, I've been struck by the the number of pieces that have come along saying, you know, while you can question, you know, the storytelling uh, ability of of Lee's, you know, Watchmen here, that, you know, she did have a lot of it right yeah. uh, in mm-hmm. discussing, you know, what the South was like in the 1930s and then right. 1950s. So uh, next week we're going to see the numbers. Yes, we'll see the numbers. I mean, there's no doubt it's going to be number one. Right. Uh, you know, Barnes & Noble is already predicted it will most likely be the biggest selling book of, of the year. Um, so that's that's good, you know, and it's it's nice to have uh, you know all the booksellers, most of whom love the book, you know, have an event uh, in July to, to to spur sales along. You know, somebody of course call it Christmas in July, right, right, and it, and, and it looks like it's the, the wealth is being shared by independent booksellers as well, who are holding uh, events on their own without you know an author events without the author so right yeah that was it was a huge event for them and they had i think we talked about last week you know uh a lot of films of to kill a mockingbird a lot of readathons of of the older book and by all accounts they really drew in you know lots of crowds um a couple of people have already said they're going to reorder the book and booksellers Uh, books a million has already told us they're going to reorder the book um harper has been a little silent on how things have gone not exactly sure why but they do have two million copies in print Mm. so we'll see if they need to go back for any more right and um you know speaking of author events without the author are there still questions about harper lee signing off on this and whether it's what she really wanted i mean i know there was a court case and all that but I still feel like there's some fuzziness around the provenance of the book. There is still quite a bit of that going around. Um, and you know I don't think 
it was helped by the Wall Street Journal piece that uh, her lawyer wrote saying, well, there might be a third book out oh, there. Oh, God. Right? Okay. And then somebody told <laughs> CNN, apparently, there could even be a fourth book. Um, so it's... It, it's too bad, um, you know. And then, you know, some of the criticism of the book said, you know, well, Harper had always said it was lightly edited, and say, well, that should have been heavier edited. But I think Harper put that out there because they didn't want people to think that these were some notes that then somebody cobbled together right. to make uh, to make the second book, and that this really was a finished piece that they found. Right. right. Um, so you know, there's a lot of theories out there about how this when it was discovered. You know, now it comes to pass that maybe it was discovered a year or two earlier than right. had been first been reported. So I don't know if we're ever going to know the true story of this. We can watch for the tell-all book to come out <laughs> in, in another thirty years, right, exactly. long after everyone's forgotten. Right, forgot, right. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. I, it, I mean, it is such a strange story and 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 such a huge event just the publishers have have transformed it into this enormous thing as you said starting back in february when the first sort of news was starting to trickle out um it's it's just it's been quite incredible to say and uh you know harper harper collins has done a good job in you know, in making it an event. But, I mean, the you know, the general media has really been all over it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, you know, and the controversy probably hasn't hurt. Um, yeah. It certainly has kept the book in the headlines uh, it's all true. week. Yeah. Uh, headlines, top of the fold. Yeah, <laughs> Your right. Times, everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the review was on page one of the Times. Right, exactly. Wow. Yeah. 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 So... Well, it'll be exciting to see how it pans out, Um, but it's interesting just to think about in what ways a book is or is not a success, you know, critically, maybe not, but uh, financially, certainly. Yeah, Yeah, no, I mean, well, that's something publishing's always uh, dealt with, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Speaking of Dan Brown. (laughs) (laughs) A critical success. (laughs) Indeed. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, It's always good to have you on here to help us make sense of uh, all these these events. And there's just so much going on with this book. Yeah, Yeah, great. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate you coming by. And now a final word for our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Tim Weiner, author of One Man Against the World. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audio bookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 